You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, everybody. You are here with Natalie Cutler-Welsh on the Up Your Brave show. And today I'm talking to Peter Pham, all the way over in Australia. We're going to be talking about empowerment, law, and living with truth. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Natalie. Great to be here. I'm excited to dive in. We really have... Uh, a bit of an idea and also no idea where this conversation is going to go and flow. And I kind of like it that way. For those of you that don't know Peter, Peter Pham is a human rights specialist lawyer and the principal lawyer at Matt's Method, the only non-government funded human rights law firm in Australia. Go you. Peter is also a director of Children's Health Defense Australia. His goal is to defend and advocate for universal law which means to defend and advocate for MAT, which is M-A-A-T, which means truth. In the last few years, Peter has worked within the system challenging the TGA, uh, Brendan Murphy, the Department of Health, and several large corporations in Australia's highest courts, focusing on defending bodily autonomy and informed consent, discrimination on the basis of medical status, censorship, censorship and free speech and challenging the legality of government decisions in the context of COVID-19 and the broader globalist movement underpinning it. Peter has a background in human rights-focused civil litigation in both the private and government sectors, and he focuses primarily on tort law, administrative law, privacy law, discrimination law, and other areas of civil litigation with a human rights focus. Peter also has particular expertise regarding the international human rights framework that Australia is a signatory to. Wow, that is quite a background, and I'd love to dive into a little more um, about how you got here. Like, how did you get to the point where this was your thing, this is your focus, and obviously going up against some of those big players, um, how did you come to be here? Yeah, um, it's been a real roller coaster. <laughs> um, I was born in uh, Western Sydney in a, a very poor area, um, and we didn't have much growing up. My parents came to Australia from Egypt um, just before I was born. Uh, my mother is uh, Coptic, which is an uh, ethnic group indigenous to Northern Africa, Egypt. My father is uh, partly Nubian, which is a group indigenous to the southern part of Egypt and northern Sudan. But I was pretty much divorced from that and, and grew up here um, in Australia in a society that um, I never felt like I really belonged to and didn't really understand why. Um, grew up with really strong feelings that everything here was a little bit strange and a little bit weird. I couldn't understand why people were living in the way that they were living why there were homeless people on the street and everybody was just ignoring them, um, why um, the things that I thought were interesting and valuable or felt valuable to me were kind of rejected or, or um, pushed away or, or um, just not, not valued by the people around me. And I just grew up being very ashamed of myself and, and feeling like I didn't belong, um, thinking there was something wrong with me. Um, eventually, and I'm making a long story very short, um, I grew up and began to see things a little differently. And through a process of learning more about actually who I was and more about who my ancestors were and that there were other forms of human society that have existed that were very different to the one that currently dominates the world, I began to understand that maybe there isn't something wrong with me, but maybe there's something wrong with the systems I'm living in. Um, became a lawyer, hated it. I hated the law degree. I scraped through it. I was dissociating and escaping with all kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms and and dealing with the childhood that I had as well at the same time. Um, and then eventually came to this thought of, oh, maybe, um, maybe I can try to help people and maybe I can try and do what I feel like is right with my law degree, um, which I which I sort of begrudgingly had. Um, and went into private practice as a lawyer, um, working as a human rights lawyer. Um, I thought that was going to be the way to do what I want to do in the world. And it was always, you know, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a human rights lawyer, which a lot of lawyers, a lot of uh, people who study law have that dream of I want to be a human rights lawyer. And most end up 
in corporate law making money. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I I did um, a few jobs um, in a few different law firms, private practice, like big firm in the city, and I was working with um, survivors of institutional abuse. Australia has a really terrible, disgusting history of um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, psychiatric abuse in government-run institutions and religious institutions as well. Um, and then eventually got a job which was like kind of like a dream job as a human rights lawyer in a human rights specialist team. The thing in Australia, though, is that all the human rights legal practices are funded by the government because there's no money in human rights law. Mm. And I ran into this problem where there were boundaries cast around what I was allowed to do and what I was allowed to say. And I didn't like that. I had already been depressed working in other areas of law that didn't resonate with who I was. I don't like compromising myself. I don't like compromising what I believe to be true. And I had just learned enough about the world that we live in at that point in time to have really strong um, principles um, about the way that things were and what was wrong with the systems that have been set up around us, including the legal system. Um, I don't want to go on too much about this, but I'll just give two brief examples and then explain how that leads to where I am now. First example is I was doing a lot of work around um, the Indigenous communities in Australia, who especially in the rural suburb uh, towns are hounded by the police. Like they get, people wouldn't believe what happens in those communities in terms of the interactions between the police and the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. There was one kid whose family I was working with who had been killed by a police officer. The kid witnessed the police officer um, executing a drug deal and the police officer saw the kid see him doing the drug deal. And this is a bit of a, a, a conspiracy in Australia, but the police are quite heavily involved in the drug trade, especially in rural Australia. Um, anyway, the kid is killed in the context of a police pursuit and the family strongly believes that the, the kid was killed by the police on purpose. And rather than do the legal claim that I was sort of enlisted to do, they wanted to go to the media. And I agreed with them. I thought, yep, good idea. The best way to raise awareness about what's going on in the, in your community is to go to the media. And I went to my superiors and asked, can we go to the media? Um, and we weren't allowed to because the... CEO of the legal practice I was working for was very good friends with the commissioner of police and the, the of funding of the service would be jeopardized and and all this. So that was the first strike. The second strike was COVID-19 rolls around and I'm speaking out about the public health directives, the vaccine mandates. Um, I'm doing work on the side and I'm writing articles and posting them online about how what the government is doing is not lawful which I still believe. They were academic articles. They weren't um, controversial. I wasn't trying to be inflammatory. I was saying, here's what the law says, here's what the government's doing, and here's why it doesn't actually align with the precedent that's been around for more than 100 years in terms of the the law in this area. Um, But when one of those articles went quite viral, um, I started getting complaints made to my employer and pulled into disciplinary meetings. And once again, I was faced with this scenario where I had a choice to make between being authentic, um, speaking the truth, being myself, or compromising because in this case, I wanted to keep my job or I wanted to keep a secure income or whatever. And I knew um, because I've I've been faced with that choice before between what's right versus what's secure or what's easy. And I know that if you make the secure, easy choice – Uh, For me, it leads to depression because I'm not living in alignment with who I actually am. And that's not much of a choice for me anymore because I've tasted what that's like. So I have to take the hard road um, and do what I know is right. And in in that case, I decided I couldn't work for any of the human rights practices. I had to start my own practice that didn't rely on government funding. And that's why I started my arts method, which is the firm that I run now, um, Ma'at, as you said, Natalie, at the start, is the deity, the comedic deity, which is ancient Egypt, ancient Egyptian spiritual framework um, that represents truth. Now, in ancient Egypt, truth is not something that is divorced from reality. 
truth and justice are the same thing. And it's like a string that exists in everything. It can't be extrapolated from our existence here. We can sort of distract ourselves from it, but it's always there. And my job and the way that I see my job is that I'm not necessarily a lawyer within the legal system that currently exists because the legal system that currently exists is corrupted and broken and poisoned. And like all of the other systems we're currently living in is out of balance with the core foundational principles that our species as human beings has upheld as sacred for hundreds of thousands of years. That's not my priority. I work in that system, but my priority, my role is I'm a lawman. I'm a keeper of law, which is how the ancient Egyptians saw lawyers. And it's not just my ancestors, the ancient Egyptians. All of our ancestors um, had very similar um, societal and cultural norms that were followed, including legal systems that operated not as a sort of separate building that you go to to solve disputes in, but as an intrinsic element of the social and cultural framework that all of our ancestors lived in. Um, so as a lawman, my job is to uphold, defend and advocate for that truth and maybe to remind people sometimes of what that truth is. Um, but everybody has that inside of them. Everybody has a tether to that truth that I'm talking about. Um, we've just been conditioned to forget about it and to live in a way that keeps us kind of looking through a distorted glass at it rather than actually in communion with it. Um, so that's a truncated, clumsy version of <laughs> how I got here. <laughs> well, there's so much in that. There's so many think ways we could go with that. I'll start at the, at the very end. I think, yeah, one of the positives, I suppose, that has come out of the last three to four years is that now more people have been ignited to, as you say, uphold, defend, and advocate for truth. Like the truth that's within them, but that's never really been challenged maybe to the same extent before. Did you see a lot of Australians like in the circles that you were in or the geographical place that you were in during the past three to four years? Did you see a lot of Australians yourself really rising up and starting to advocate for truth as well, like you were? Yeah. Or were you kind of on uh your own? No, uh, yeah, there's a huge um, awakening going on. Everybody's aware of it. You know, there's green shoots everywhere. I think that Australia is a nation of people who are um, quite desensitized from truth. And even the, the context of what Australia is means that most people have never faced these uncomfortable questions before. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a human rights lawyer before COVID, and I only say that because some people really focus on the last three years. But the last three years is an intensification of something that was going on long before that, as you know, and I'm sure most of your viewers know as well. Um, in Australia, there is, you know, the awakening is happening. There are communities of people springing up. There are alternative systems springing up. Everybody kind of knows now that the government is corrupt. Um, there are transnational corporations and bureaucratic conglomerates trying to push humanity in a particular direction, uh, pursuant to a particular plan. That's very apparent to everybody. Um, for some people, it's just a case of, and you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to get into the, the what's causing this. Is there some big story of some big plan? You can just think about the, the context of our own lives and you look at the way that we live. And this is how I kind of um, started to question the things around me. I was like, this doesn't really make sense. Why is the water that we're drinking, the air that we breathe, um, the food that we eat not fit for human consumption? Why do we live sedentary lifestyles that literally disable us and and um, stop us from living the mobile, active lives that we're supposed to live as human beings? Why are we increasingly isolated, increasingly reliant on technology, having these conversations over video call? I do it as well. But this is not the way that we're supposed to be living. And you talk to any elder from any tribe that retains some of the ancient knowledge and they can trace back to systems societies and cultures and you have to go back pretty far because people don't like it when i talk about this um and they say oh this is the most advanced human society that's ever existed oh, right um that's like that is a um a myth that is propagated to make us more um willing to comply with the systems that we're currently trapped within 
we are living as diluted forms of our true selves. And luckily, we all feel enough of our power that we can't really be convinced anymore that we're not powerful. But there's still a lot of remembering for us to do in terms of who we actually are, what we're actually capable of, how we're actually supposed to be living. And we all get a little sense of that when we go to the beach and connect with nature for a little while or we um, engage in certain practices like fasting or meditation or gardening or exercise, things that everybody does and feels better when they do and begins to understand a little bit more about um, the disconnect in what we do most of the time that maybe doesn't serve us versus the type of lifestyles that we could be living that would empower us to not actually settle for anything that's currently going on in society. I think a lot of people, hopefully more and more daily, see that, that, uh, but not everyone does, you know, that we have in a way been dumbed down or suppressed. Um and interesting what you said earlier before, if you hadn't followed your own path, if you were to just go along with it and and um, compromise and live out of alignment, you would have ended up depressed. Well, a lot of people do. And then what happens? They end up on pharmaceuticals. And and so it is. They're a lifelong customer. So it, it's an interesting, if we can just bring ourselves back or have the courage to live in alignment and to say no, or to not compromise our values. And I think more people have done that in the last um more and more you know over the last few years but um it's been it's been a, something coming a long time coming i think for people to realize how we have been suppressed in a way um let's talk about the overarching topic today is i'm calling it empowerment law and living with truth how do you think we can be more empowered then as a society some of us knowing and some of us not knowing that we've been dumbed down in a way um, how can we live and be more empowered going forward? Wow, what a question. Um, I think that it's just listening to the voice inside. Um, as soon as every time you know what you're supposed to do in a situation and you actually do it, which takes courage because usually there's some resistance. Like a great example is the last three years, obviously. You know, a lot of us were in situations where if you didn't get a particular drug, you were ostracized from society, you lost your job, um, maybe your relationship, your close relationships were, were damaged. Um, there was a lot of resistance to doing what you believe to be right and true. But every single person I know who made the choice that aligns with what they knew to be true does not regret it. Mm. And it's it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. In my own experience, that choice of doing what's right was much more difficult the first few times I made it. I was terrified. Oh my God, what's going to happen? But once I showed myself that I was capable of doing what I believed to be true, the feedback that I received from the universe or source or God or whatever you want to call it was so powerful. And we're talking about empowerment. Mm -hmm. True empowerment is doing what you know is right irrespective of the consequences because when you show yourself that you can do that it gets easier and easier and easier and not only that your life actually gets better because even if there are some short-term material consequences you begin living more in alignment with what you actually believe in and who you actually are which as we said before is much 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 more pleasurable and less painful than the alternative because like when I was a lawyer, uh, and I'm still a lawyer, but when I was a lawyer in the big firms, I used to go to the senior lawyers and ask them, do you like your job? Like, are you happy? Because I was trying to decide what to do. Like, do you are you enjoying this? And they would always give me this complicated answer. It was always very similar where they would, they would say, oh, look, uh, it's very stressful. I don't see my family very often. Um, I've got this health problem and this health problem. Um, I don't get to exercise as much as I would like. And they'd list all these negative things. And then they'd say, oh, but the money's good or, oh, but uh, but it's comfortable. Or they'd give me this little thing that I didn't care about as the reason why they're doing the job. And then when they said all of that, I'd look at them and I could just see etched in the lines in their face and their posture and their whole energy, just how unhappy and dissatisfied they were. And you can only live in that state for so long. You know, whether it's in the course of this one life or in the course of your entire existence as a, as a being, as a soul, 
you can only live in a way that's not aligned with who you are for so long. There has to be a correction. And it's kind of like what's happening with our society right now. There's a huge correction that's going on on a global scale. We've gone so far down the road of um, misalignment, disconnection, disempowerment, that the correction is looking like it might be quite drastic. But nonetheless, the correction is inevitable because there's an actual frequency of truth of ma'at that runs through society. We can't get too far. Like further we get away, the more the resistance is that's going to snap us back. Um, why was I saying that, Natalie? What am I talking about? I went off track, didn't I? No, it's all good. It's all good. There's there's so much to dive into. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the work you've been doing with different organizations. And obviously over here in New Zealand, we have same but different um, in terms of, I think you mentioned in your bio, the TGA and other things like how much is it, how much can we do? So the question was really around empowerment. Like what can we do to be more empowered? And you, you did answer that. But in terms of the, um, as individuals versus the legal, let's go to the law side of things. Um, obviously you can use Australia as an example, but I imagine New Zealand similar. What are the, what is the best route? I mean, there's always things coming around petitions for us to sign, or maybe, you know, issues going around that we can support or not support. What is the best way that we can make traction um, in terms of the legal side of things in our own countries? Um, the legal system is a facet of broader society. And as a human rights lawyer, I also look at sociology and history and um, because a necessary element of a legal system are the people that make up the legal system, the judges, the barristers, the lawyers, they're all people, they're all part of society. And why am I saying this? Over the past few years, I've been suing the government in the court about what's going on with COVID, along with a, a, a team of other people. And one of the outcomes of that has been, in summary, that the courts have taken the government advice on notice and dismissed expert evidence that says something that doesn't align with what the government is saying. There are complicated reasons for that. Some of them involve some corruption in terms of how the legal system is supposed to operate, but some of them also just involve the fact that the legal system is made up of human beings. And just as a large part of society at the moment is conditioned and distracted and confused by the very intricate spells that are cast around us and illusions that are cast around us. It's the same for lawyers. It might be worse because lawyers live in this little bubble and they usually don't have a very broad spectrum of life experience and they're quite arrogant. We're trained to be combative and, and to be very narrow in our thinking. So it might be even more difficult for lawyers to be uncomfortable and begin to accept something that might make their reputation threatened or might make them seem to be subversive. Um, what can we do in terms of the context of a legal system? Um, there's two parts. There's two answers. First answer is as society shifts, the legal system will shift as well because it has to. It's not going to have a choice. In any system, and this is the sociological point, in any system, 10% of a system resisting the system makes the system unsustainable. That's a maximum in sociology. It happened, it's happened over and over again throughout history. That's how great societies and governments and cultures have fallen again and again and again in the Roman Empire. Um, there's so, obviously so many examples because 10% of the system is in active resistance to the system. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Like if you had 10% of a population actively resisting what the governing body politic was trying to do, they couldn't do anything. To give an example from Australia, um, there were obviously vaccine mandates everywhere. In Western Australia, the, they, they tried to bring in a vaccine mandate for nurses, but 16% of the nurses there said, we don't want to get the vaccine. And so much so that we're willing to walk and leave our jobs if you force this on us. Well, that was too much for the system to be sustainable. So they had to walk it back and not implement the vaccine mandate. They were the only state in Australia where a vaccine mandate wasn't passed for, for nurses because it wouldn't have been sustainable. That kind of active resistance is is key. And it, that's that's where the power comes from. It comes from the individual. It doesn't come from the legal system. Mm. The 10% of critical mass, it sounds really doable to me. It is doable. It's very doable. I think we've already, in a societal sense, we've already hit way much more than 10%. Agreed. It's just such a complex web to be 
sort of unraveled that it's going to take a lot of time. I mean, we saw recently in Australia the voice, um, which was a referendum that yeah. the government tried to pass. Um, and 60% of people said no. And a huge, it's complicated, but a huge aspect of that was just distrust in government. Government doesn't know what they're doing. They don't have people's best interests at heart. Um, we don't trust what they're trying to do. There's massive scrutiny now on every single bill. You know, in Australia, we had the misinformation, disinformation bill. I think I talked about it on Reality Check Radio, actually. Um, and they're trying to censor speech. I know they're doing the same thing in New Zealand. New Zealand's yeah. a little bit further down that road, although the change in government might um, halt that. We'll see. Oh, Jacinda's but, still trying to push that, but I, I don't think it's going to work. Jacinda? Yeah. Well, she's gone off to the WEF or something. She, yes, but she's still trying to be like in charge of the whole misinformation. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. There you go. Mm. Um, she just can't let it go. Huh? No. Um, but there was a massive screw. They released a bill in Australia, a draft bill, a draft law. And there was 5,000 legal submissions made, not from lawyers, of them, you know, a couple of legal ones, but just from citizens, people in the public who were like, we don't like this, here's all the reasons why. And they were so overwhelmed that they had to go back to the drawing board and we haven't heard anything about it since. They're going to keep trying and they'll repackage it and reframe it. But there is massive, massive eyes on what the government is doing now. Simultaneously, individuals and communities are rising up and making that decision I talked about before to do what they know is right and true. Mm. And, you know, once you do that enough times, you're not willing to compromise anymore no matter what. And it's going to be very difficult. And I, I say it's already impossible for the plans that they have in motion to actually succeed. And that tipping point of 10%, that critical mass has already been reached. There's an elder, um, a senior lawman, um, senior lawman Juma, who's one of the most senior lawmen in Australia. And he said, he says that in the spiritual realm, we've already won. It's just a matter of actualizing that in the in the physical reality around us. And I think that's true. I think we can sense that. Um, it doesn't mean things aren't going to be difficult, uncomfortable, traumatic. Um, we look around the world. You know, I just got back from Egypt um, about a month ago or a couple of months ago now. And it's an example of a place where things are much more intense than here. Um, you know, the economy is literally collapsing. People can't afford groceries the power gets shut off for four five six hours a day um these are all things that we think might happen you know we talk about this is there going to be a food shortage is there going to be is the economy going to collapse a lot of this stuff is already happening around the world and it thrusts people into fight or flight mode to a large extent we're quite lucky in australia and new zealand that we've had a lot of time and space and to process those potential realities such that when they hit, I think we're going to find that we all come together as a community and, and deal with it without compromising on what we believe in and what we know to be true. So I think there is going to be some difficulty and challenge and trauma, but what's going to happen is that's just going to force us to grow and to be more empowered and to um, be even more brave and um, live in the way that we know is true. And that's what's actually going to create the type of society we're all craving, which is one where we are all more brave, courageous. We live in communion, but retain our individual sovereignty, our sovereignty of self in the sanctity of community. It's not just sovereignty of self in isolation. People talk about sovereignty. Yes, I get it. Very important. Central tenet of human rights law is self-determination, which is a diluted version of sovereignty. Um, but it's the sovereignty of self in the sanctity of community. We are communal, tribal, beings who require interdependent social relationships in order to reach our full potential that our brains developed in that way our ability to speak and to have complex forms of language not only developed our complex brains but also is what sets us apart from the rest of of living existence around us um so I think that things are going to be difficult. To go back to the legal system, the legal system will change as the rest of society changes. 
um there are it is important that kind of it's a tool in the toolbox like th that kind of active resistance litigation strategic litigation every single one of those actions it just helps to shine the light of truth in that particular space you know the legal aspect of society the the the, the courts and the law is an important element of a society it's just a very dark place right now but every time somebody goes there whether it's a citizen or a lawyer to be honest at the moment it's mostly citizens there aren't many lawyers who are really being honest um every time a light is shone there it does have an impact on the judges the barristers the lawyers they see oh wow there's a really big segment of community that feels very strongly about this maybe i should think about it maybe it's okay for me to think about it as well um, maybe I have to think about it because there's so many people outside the courtroom that I don't have a choice but to think about it. So I know it's a roundabout way of answering your question, but I don't, sometimes people think the legal system is going to save us. That's, we can't be thinking any system is going to save us. We're going to save us. Um, the legal system is a tool in the toolbox that can help facilitate a process that's already going on anyway. Um, and it is a powerful tool and it's the tool that I spend my time using, but we've all got our own tools and we all have different ways of facilitating the same process of growth, transition, transformation, awakening, whatever you want to call it, that's currently going on. I think it's such a good reminder for people that uh, it does make a difference. Every, but the thing is, that is not the thing to do. Everything does make a difference. We're heading yeah. towards and and um, exceeding this 10% that we're going for that to, to make things, to help things to shift. For those of you that are listening, you can send us a text 2057 on the text or inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear what is resonating for you from this conversation where we've talked um, about a whole host of topics, everything from belonging and not compromising through to um, upholding and defending the truth. Uh, send us a message. Let us know what is resonating for you. Two things, Peter, that I want to jump back to that you alluded to. One of them is um, you mentioned that people saying that this is the most innovative time that we've ever been or something like that, like technology. And, and I kind of laughed. And, and I do believe, rightly or wrongly, that there are some technologies, innovations, um, inventions that have been hidden as such from us. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, Going forward, when more truth comes to light, do you think there are more advanced technologies that we just don't know about in terms of healthcare or transport or whatever? Of course, the the, the evidence on that point is is very very clear. Um, we the the basic example that most people know about to use my own um, heritage is the the pyramids. I mean, we still don't know how they lifted the 60 ton granite blocks into the top of the king's chamber we don't have technology today that is capable of doing that um, if you dig into that a little bit you start to learn about things like vibration and sound and the way that our physical reality can be manipulated in ways that we have forgotten about um, but there are other other ways that you can begin to approach those questions as well i mean i talked about this this thing that i, I called the myth of primitivism i took that phrase from um an Aboriginal man, Tyson Young Kapoorta, who wrote a great book called Sand Talk, which is all about this topic. And one of the things that um, he discusses in that book, he's also an academic and he works in a university. And so he's kind of this, he walks in two worlds, kind of like me. I walk in the two worlds of being a person of law, universal law, natural law, but also being a lawyer in this system. He walks in two worlds of his ancient knowledge and culture and also work, walking in the, this world as a scientist and as an academic. And he talks about the human brain. And this is something that actually there's a few studies around. Um, how did we develop such a complicated, complex brain, which we only use a very small percentage of? You know, there are trillions of neuro connections in our brain that we don't actually use. How did such an organ develop if we weren't actually using and accessing those neural pathways in a much more holistic and human way of being a long time ago. You know, there are obviously lots of different explanations you can throw out there, but one of them is that we were living in a way that actually utilized the entirety of our biological makeup. And that's why we developed this way. Um, that aligns with the scientific reasoning behind all, how all things develop. When we look around us, um, 
and we look in nature, and nature is one of the best ways to understand law because nature doesn't lie. We see systems and cycles and repetitions and patterns in nature that happen no matter what. They're just true. Um, one of those patterns is that things develop in accordance with what they use and what they need, and we're the same. We're not using a huge proportion of our brain. Similarly, using the brain again, <laughs> um, the brain is a fatty organ, which require any fat, any fatty organ requires a huge amount of nutritional abundance in order to develop and grow. How did we develop such a gargantuan brain compared to any other species on the planet if we weren't living in a state of supreme nutritional abundance? You can look at the soil and substantiate that further. The nutritional value of the soils around the world is plummeting because of the means of agriculture that we've been using for a few thousand years now. Um, so there are... Um, Lots of signs that help us to understand that there were ways of living and technologies that, um, I mean, the word technology in a broad sense, that allowed us to live in a way that was more aligned with who we are and that was more fulfilling as well, that was more natural, more aligned with nature. We have technology now that didn't exist in particular periods of history. And I'm not saying that technology is bad. Um, technology is a tool. And like all tools, it can be used for good or for evil. But in general, the way that we live, the the education models that we live within, and the way that we utilize the tools around us, um, I believe, are not um, as beneficial for us as the systems, cultures, rituals, ceremonies that all of our ancestors engaged with. And one thing I, I like to talk about because it, it brings people in, because sometimes when I talk about ancient cultures or indigenous frameworks, people feel excluded by that because they don't think they belong to any of that. They think, oh, you're criticizing our thing and you're saying that there was this thing back in the day that was better. It's not what I'm saying at all. All of our ancestors told the same stories. All of our ancestors had very similar perspectives on one truth. You know, whether you go to Celtic history, Gaelic history, my history, ancient Egyptian history, the indigenous history in Australia, the Maoris, doesn't matter which culture you go to. If you go back far enough, not only were there analogous stories and analogous truths being told, often in the form of what we today call myths, um, but for these cultures, myths were were much more real than they are um, myths. Um there are analogous stories and analogous truths being expressed. And there was a lot more communication between our ancestors than we 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 tend to think. You know, there are hieroglyphics in Australia on the central coast that nobody can really explain. There's a tribe in the middle of Australia, a, a tribe that still lives traditionally that speaks fluent Russian. There are these incredible things that um, we don't really hear about very often. Obviously, there are pyramids all around the world that that, that most people know about the pyramids in, in South America and, and Central America, as well as obviously the pyramids in Africa. So we were a lot more connected than we tend to think. And we also, yes, had a lot of access to technologies, you know, um, vibration, sound, anti-gravity. These are all things that you can find stories about and which might help to explain in how things like the Great Pyramids were built or Sigiriya in Sri Lanka, which is a huge um, temple inside of a mountain in Sri Lanka that nobody can explain. Um, these anomalies exist all over the world. There are great shows about it now on you know mainstream streaming platforms like even Netflix. These, this is pretty common knowledge now. Most people acknowledge that there were technologies um, existing in our history that no longer exist. Um, and there's complicated reasons for why we've lost those. But there's, you know, one common thread and one of the ways that I came to understand and, and think about what's happening today is that all of our ancestors actually said that the time we're living through now would be a time of, of awakening. My ancestors called it the great awakening of the souls. This time, specifically the 2020s, uh, um, the, you know, we heard about the Mayan calendar. People thought the world was going to end in 2012, but actually that was... Um, an apocalypse, the word apocalypse just means transition or transformation. It was the signal of the beginning of a transformation in human consciousness. The Hindus talk about the great cycles of time encapsulated within the great years, and people might know about the Kali Yuga. 
and the period of darkness, which you know, on their calendar, we're literally just at the precipice of getting out of. We're just beginning the age of Aquarius to use astrology. Yes, um, these are all ways of expressing a new age of human um, consciousness and community. And unfortunately, growth often requires discomfort, <laughs> just like in our own lives. Being uncomfortable is is what often forces us to change. That's happening on a societal level as well. And all of our ancestors told us about it. So. We're pretty lucky in some ways to be living through it, even though it's it's not easy. Um, it's quite an opportunity. I am really looking forward to when we do learn um, the true history of New Zealand specifically, but of course, all around the world. I'm I'm just so excited. I'm so fascinated by that. Everything you're talking about, architecture, looking at the bells that were in the churches that they don't have anymore, looking at pyramids that are are all over the world and and just so many things. I'm so fascinated by that. And I would love us to be able to talk. Um, let's say when we go for coffee with our friends, to have conversations that are like that on that deeper level, rather than just some of the basic stuff we sometimes talk about. Um, so I love that we're raising these issues and hopefully people can go away from this interview and say, hey, I never really thought about how, uh, the pyramids and how they were built and just start to explore and start to ask questions in this environment that a little bit more and more every day, we are able to speak more freely without feeling like we're going to be um, looked at sideways or or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting the feeling from you that maybe I'm, okay, I feel positive about the future. I'm getting the feeling from you that you do just based on some of the stuff you said, but something else you also alluded to is, so, is illusions and spells that are cast around us. Can you touch on that before we wrap things up? Yeah, we are extremely powerful beings. Uh, we are meaning-making machines. And um, whatever or whoever is trying to trap us, know that. And one of the only ways that we will comply with injustice and evil is if we are deceived. And spells and illusion and trickery is a great way to deceive us. Um in tandem with an education system that is designed to make us susceptible to those kinds of illusions and spells and tricks. Um, everything from the language that we speak to the way that we spend our time combined with the physical reality that we do, most of us, you know, if you live in a city or you live near a city, your body is just being absolutely slammed with all kinds of environmental toxins. You know, most of the food that we eat now is processed and full of chemicals. Um, all of this makes us susceptible to believe things that the deepest part of us knows aren't actually true. Um, but my experience is that we are constantly being underestimated and the efficacy of those spells and illusions and tricks is very quickly wearing off. And part of that is cosmological. I'm just going to go there. Um, in terms of the actual energies that exist on the earth, it's very difficult for those spells and illusions and tricks to be maintained in the context where the very energy of the earth is resistant to it because we're moving into a new age where that kind of deceit and evil um, is not allowed to propagate and, and fester. Um, so even though we are drinking water that's full of fluoride and um, eating processed food, not you and I, but, you know, we we many of us try to minimise this stuff, obviously, but it's unavoidable to some extent unless you literally live in the middle of nowhere. You know, if you're, th there is an element of environmental toxicity, you were probably educated in an educational system that was designed to teach you to recall things from memory rather than to actually critically think and learn things for yourself. Um, all of that, you know, the, the social media we consume, the effect of technology on our brains, um, news, all of this stuff um, still hasn't stopped us from having this conversation today. It still hasn't stopped your listeners from choosing to listen to your, your program mm -hmm. and thinking about how can I better my own life? How can I help people around me? How can I help myself? How can I be the fullest realization of myself? I'm craving something that is more than what I'm told we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to have. That's just because we are incredibly powerful beings. We are literally fragmentations of the divine. We chose to come here at this time knowing that what would be happening now is happening now. And we made that choice anyway. That takes so much courage and bravery and so much um um selflessness as well 
But that's because we're all connected and we know that coming here during this time and shining a light is extremely important. It's one of the most important times in history to do that because it's going to help everybody else around you to start thinking that maybe they can shine their light too. And then that transition, which is inevitable anyway, is going to be a little bit easier and um, a little bit more comfortable than it might otherwise be if we sort of bury our heads in the sand and just let things play out. Um, so yeah, I am optimistic. I I'm optimistic, but I, I, I pepper it with reality, you know, cause it's easy to sort of spiritually bypass the reality of what's going on. Um, people are genuinely dying, you know, uh, people are genuinely in a lot of pain. Um, people are experiencing a lot of trauma, um, and society in many respects is genuinely collapsing. Um, to me, I because I came at this from a place of not liking society very much, uh, um, part of me is excited by it on the level that I know because I've been told in many different ways that what's on the other side of that is a necessary, better human existence. And the pain of being diluted, even if you're comfortable, is not worth it to me. I would rather go through a period of trauma in order to really find out who the hell I am. And I would rather for that to occur on a, on a societal level as well and a cultural level as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm optimistic in, in the sense that that's the framework I apply to what's going on. Um, but I do think that we're going to have to be really rely on each other and really help each other over the next few years as this transition occurs, because I think it could be a pretty bumpy ride. Wow. That's there. It is everybody. There it is. There's the mic drop right at the very end. Um, that is so spot on. I feel in such a, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to, I do feel positive about the future, but we are going to have to go through some hard times. One of, I don't know if you know this about me. I have a daily purpose statement, something that I connect with every day. And it goes like this every day. I get up to shine the light on people, problems, and possibilities so that we can come together and heal humanity. And just then you were talking about shining the light. And I feel like, yeah, that's right. Everything that we do in our own separate ways, whether it's sign a petition or raise a conversation with someone or maybe someone else acknowledging or apologizing to someone else, everything that we do, it does it does shift things. and. Um, I feel like it's a slow process, but I know we're we're getting there. Before we wrap things up, Peter, I'm going to um, just ask you, how can people reach out? How can they connect with you if they want to get in touch? And what is coming up for you in the next few months as well? Um, we're, we're currently in a process of growing Mart's method because we want to be sustainable and we also want to um, really um, take the opportunity that's before us to create a huge platform for truth and a human rights practice for law people who actually understand what a law person is and don't compromise that for anything. Um, if you want to follow along that journey, you can go to our website, um, www.martsmethod.com.au. And if you want to support us, um, you could sign up to our Substack. We started a Substack uh, a few months ago. It's a way of um, learning a bit about law. So we post about both law as in the legal system human rights law cases stuff like that what's going on in the world but we also post about natural law and you know some people might refer to it as l-o-r-e mm -hmm. um the law that governs our existence here as human beings so it's a, a melding of those two worlds which are the two worlds that i walk in um if you follow us there you'll get access to all of the articles for free and we also do uh, podcast episodes where I speak to the articles that I've posted on there as well. So that's a good way to um, follow us and support us if you choose to as well. 
Um, so they're probably two good ways to follow us. We're on all the corrupt social media platforms as well. <laughs> okay. So for people that are listening, it's dub dub Matt's method, which is M A A T S method.com.au. We will put the link to that and the Substack on the replay page that you can find on the RCR app or on our website as well. Um, I was asking you what's coming up. I'm actually going to rephrase that. Um, uh, if you were to truly up your brave in 2024, what would you do? Um, yeah, just, just, just step fully into my power. And, um, um, I know that this year for me is a year of making moves and, uh, creating a life for myself that allows me to live in full alignment with who I am. Um, I've been doing my best to just hold on to a roller coaster for the past few years. And I've been a bit reactive in what I've been doing. I'm trying to apply a bit more strategy and foresight so that I can respond to what's happening and fully take advantage of the opportunity that is here before me in my own life. I know what my path is. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I just want to take it to the next level. So I'm trying to grow um, a community and a platform that fearlessly advocates for and defends for the truth on a large scale, not reliant on any government funding, um, totally independent and uncompromising in that pursuit for what's true. And by doing that, I want to shine the light like we said, to help other people realize whether they're lawyers or not, that that's a pathway that you can viably take. And not only that, it's a great pathway. It's one of the most rewarding pathways you can take as a human being, which is to identify what you believe to be true and chase it and defend it and advocate for it as best as you can. Well, that sounds like an, a powerful thing to do. So you guys can get in touch with Peter, if you want to be part of that journey, I've already made a list, by the way, of like five people that I'm excited to connect you with because I am a, a big nerd and a super connector. So, um, but if anyone else out there listening, um, even if you just go and share this interview, that's powerful. That's shining the light. You know, somebody listening might think this is a powerful interview. Go and share it with someone in your life or post it on social media if you feel inclined. It all makes a difference. Peter, before we wrap things up, is there anything else you want to say or share with our audience today? Um, yeah, just, just keep going. You know, I think if you're here, you're somebody who your heart is in the right place and you're connected to a desire to do what's right and just, and I appreciate that. And I love you and thank you for um, being here and thank you for choosing to live in such a difficult time, but choosing to do your best because that's exactly what we all need. So that's all. Just um, thank you. I'm with you. And let's keep going into 2024. Amazing. Thanks so much, Peter. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. Do you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to? Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'd love to hear from you, so connect with us today.